Welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Robert Lyles of Lyles Parker and Paul Weidenfeld of Exclusion Screening to be presenting the critical role of background checks and exclusion screening in risk management and compliance programs. Mr. Lyles focuses his practice on healthcare fraud defense, internal audits, investigations, and compliance and regulatory matters. Mr. Lyles has represented a wide variety of healthcare providers in administrative and civil proceedings and in connection with internal compliance reviews. After the passage of HIPAA in 1996, Robert served as the first national healthcare fraud coordinator in for the Department of Justice Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys. In this capacity, he advised prosecutors around the country on civil and criminal health care fraud statutes, schemes, investigative tools, privacy concerns, and compliance issues. He was instrumental in writing and implementing Department of Justice guidance on judicious use of the False Claims Act. Since entering private practice, Robert has continued to build on his healthcare background and expertise. He has represented home health, hospice, and other healthcare pro providers, durable equipment suppliers, and third-party billing companies around the country in connection with government investigations, overpayment audits by Medicare contractors, and special investigative units working for private payer plans. Robert currently serves as outside general counsel for the American Medical Billing Association and is recommended by numerous healthcare-related associations to their members. Paul Weidenfeld's principal area of focus since the passage of HIPAA has been civil and criminal healthcare fraud investigations and quitom litigation brought pursuant to federal and state False Claims Act statutes. He has served as the National Healthcare Fraud Coordinator for the Department of Justice's Executive Office and as Assistant U.S. Attorney in New Orleans handling both criminal and civil health care fraud matters. Since leaving the DOJ, Paul has represented a number of providers and individuals in health care fraud matters arising out of or related to Civil False Claims Act investigations. Paul also has extensive litigation experience, including approximately 50 trials and about 25 appellate arguments before, among others, the United States Supreme Court, the Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Louisiana Supreme Court. Paul recently opened his own practice to concentrate on building his mediation and consulting practice. Paul, Robert, go ahead. Well, good afternoon, Robert. And Hello, thank, Paul. And thank you, folks at First Healthcare. Um, we got an interesting one here today, I think. Yep, we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about background checks and exclusion screening and how those those issues kind of fit within the overall compliance program that an organization is required to put into place. But first, I think we have to apologize by subjecting everybody to those long. Introductions. Ah, you know, yeah. we have to I figure. Agree. We have to do something about that. Yeah, I agree. That's but too much. Titles and all that stuff about you, man. Ah, me too. Anyway, so all right. So, what's the difference between risk management basics and compliance plan basics? Okay, so we're going to start with that, right? And we're going to start. The idea is that a risk management plan is sort of the overall, the big picture structure, right? What do they call the strategic business discipline? I love this stuff. Supporting the achievement of the organization's objectives. And the interrelated portfolio. In other words, they're saying let's not look at silos. Let's look at the whole big picture, right? That's kind of what an enterprise risk management is all about. And what is the definition? Basically, that it looks at the whole thing itself. Okay. okay. So that's that's risk management. Now. And I can tell you, when I first started out in healthcare in in '84, working in hospitals, risk management was all there was. There wasn't such thing as a compliance officer. 
it's it's had an interesting evolution. You're right because it started that way, and but and then its risk management evolved as compliance came just into the insurance side, responding to accidents and so forth. So now it's coming full circle and coming back to healthcare. It really is. There's no question. It's 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 it's, it's gone through an evolution. So let's compare. So risk management, the big picture, and now you and compliance. You started in compliance. You were in a hospital. You were a uh, in hospital administration, right? You started you have a master's in hospital administration, don't you? Right, right, right. But we didn't we didn't have a compliance plan. I can tell you that. You know, I mean, risk management in those days we focused really primarily on on patient care and, and medical malpractice and and um, uh, OSHA and. When it came to, to regulatory matter, those kind of issues really kind of fell all within risk management. They didn't really kind of talk about it in terms of of, of regulatory compliance. An overall yet. plan. Right. So it was like in the late 90s, wasn't it, where the OIG started pumping out all of these um, compliance guidance. 98, that's right. And, and so what would a, so it became a compliance plan. So what's a compliance plan versus a risk management Program is it really well? I, ultimately, I think they have a lot of the same key components. I think it's 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 probably just the way that you really kind of look at it. So, so the compliance plan would it be fair to say is that's the that's the program specifically related to the health side of it. Whereas, because there are um, concerns, so they for a large provider that go beyond. You know, they go like into. Uh, Debt services and all that kind of stuff, and that's not with the. That's would, right. It wouldn't be part of the compliance plan. And it? part of the difference also was because with the uh, evolution of the U.S. sentencing guidelines, of course, where they started giving credit to organizations that had these these roadmaps to keep you within the four corners of the law. I mean, that really kind of uh, uh, elevated the importance of having one of these plans in place because it really encouraged organizations, not just healthcare organizations, but all organizations that are really kind of constrained by these regulatory processes to, to, to really kind of have something out there that would encourage them, if they found a mistake, to co correct it, and in some cases report it when necessary. All right. So they have to shape the same, they share the same goals and a lot of the same processes, although they, we have to, they are different some people would say they're completely different. Others would say that compliance is a part of risk management. I personally think that really compliance is a part of and fits in to risk management, but that's a different discussion. Well, that's a whole new, that's this whole new theory coming out with enterprise risk management, which right. is something that you're really kind of involved in these days. Exactly. You know, and, and it's kind of which, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Right. You know, uh, uh, I can tell you that many hospitals still have risk management as a subsection of compliance. Not the other way around. And a lot of, and there's a lot of, there are turf wars that exist because, wait, the risk managers, you guys are just involved with insurance, and now you're kind of poking in on my territory. That's that right? right. But, but in an ideal world, and well, maybe this isn't an ideal world, but maybe we'll get there. But in an ideal world, they kind of have the, they have the same goals, right? They do. Quality care. They do. Safe work environment. You know, let's protect the financial resources of the facility, of, of the organization, and, you know, ensure regulatory legal compliance, and these are the processes we identify. And I think this is kind of the same. Is this pretty much, the, is this a redundant slide? Uh, it's, 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 uh, there's more words on it, though. Yeah, you did a nice job putting a lot of words on this page. I'm surprised you all fit. Yeah, I worked hard at that. What but where does human risk cap? Our where does human capital fit in this big picture? All right, so this is what we're getting into. Like uh, we we are talking about the role of exclusion screening and background checks. And so the idea of human capital is, and, and I don't, and it's got a new word. I'm not sure. Maybe in the last five or ten years or whatever they started calling it this. But it's the idea that the the um, the value of your people, right, is your employees. It's the you know it's the totality of their behaviors. It's how they affect your uh, your business, your healthcare, your provider. So you know the, the second bullet point is that they are in fact their your greatest cost. And so it, it's always amazing to me that human resources may get tasked with finding someone who's in a critical role and they got like a day, right? Instead of looking, understanding that this is like a critical role, these are your greatest costs, and 
your greatest liabilities. Your greatest liabilities. And frankly, this really does dovetail nicely with the whole concept of the Yates Memo, which stands for the idea, of course, that you know ultimately it's it's I hate to compare it, but it's kind of like guns don't kill people, people kill people. Same thing with corporations. Corporations don't violate the law. People working in corporations violate the law. That's a really good point. You know, and that's that's something we don't necessarily think about. We, we we insulate the world of well, it's a mistake, and we can fix it within the context of you know within the healthcare. But in fact, the Yates memo not it says goes for individual liability. No. Oh, individual culpability. Then they say, you know what? I know we've done things differently in the past. I know in the past we've gone after big pharma, we've gone after these big banks, we've let the big banks pay lots of money. Everybody gets away. Uh, not in the future. Corporations are fictitious persons. There are individuals behind every crime. You know, and I think it's the big, big settlements that really has spurred the Yates memo and the focus on individuals. Absolutely. It's, it's outrageous. These huge bank fraud cases and nobody goes to jail. Well, except that not only do they not go to jail, but we bail them out. We bail them out, and the individuals start getting paid to, be fi to fix it. Large sums of money. Now, they, you know, I'm not passing judgment on all that, but the fact is that where is the individual culpability in that in those situations? There is no deterrence whatsoever. And the same is in the healthcare case. In these huge pharma cases, they may settle the case or hospital cases for a half a billion dollars, and nobody gets you know. And all pharma does is raise the price of a pill by half a cent, and they've made up the money over a month. All right, so we've gone off on that so far. We'll get back off it. All right, but let's talk about it though. So now that we've kind of gotten to the point of when it comes, at the end of the day. Whether or not you're going to succeed or fail, in large part, depends on your people. And that's really right. That's what this, that's what this webinar is about. You and I are really focused on this. You know, you can talk about we need, we need to have systems in place and we need to do this and that. But at the end of the day, if you have a non-compliant employee, none of it matters. Right. If you've got someone who's a really bad employee, you know, a Dr. Doom kind of guy or gal, who they exist, you want to keep them out. Look at this. Here's our list. And if you think about it, virtually everything that can go wrong and all the things you're protecting against really come down to like a person or person's conduct, right? It really does. Okay, safety, professional liability, your liability risk, drug diversion. You know, what is a bad employee, you know, going to do? And the really sad thing here, Paul, is we pour tons and tons of funds into auditing and monitoring training and the rest of it but what we don't do is spend enough focus on the front end before we let bad guys walk into our facility and work that's really that's really true if you think about I, you and i have represented a lot of providers and we have seen a lot of hr departments and those and i have yet to see someone you know who's heads hr or someone in hr that says you know it's amazing i'm like really staffed well and I can really make sure that we do all of the things we're supposed to do. I've yet to meet that HR no, person. No, there's there is it, it, it there it, it's shocking what uh, how poorly uh, uh, screening takes place in in most healthcare organizations, and what little work goes into checking references and conducting a bona fide background investigation. Now, don't get us wrong. We get it. Okay, we've been in healthcare. Robert's been in healthcare for 30 years. I've been in healthcare for over 20 years. So we understand the pressures when someone says, we need someone to fill this spot. I mean, we get We're it. looking for a breathing body that's licensed. So we understand the, 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 the tension there. But if you look at it, here are your, we've just talked about all of your liability, right? Comes down, or most of it comes down to individual action. And, well, not surprisingly, your costs involved are there. It's not your. It's not in your physical plant. It's not in your heating, and it's not in your you know your debt service for your for the building that you bought. It's folk, right? Yeah. So almost sixty percent of your costs are really represented by your your people That's and their weight and and their 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 wages and and their benefits. Exactly. Exactly. And really, that's you need to take that into account because you need to put a lot more focus on those issues before you bring somebody in. The hiring process is something that we need to put a lot more attention 
to because at the end of the day, as we're going to discuss, there are there are a lot of things that that uh, uh, can go wrong in the hiring process. So we can go through. There's one thing I want to say about this slide, and that's the a, a good a company can use their hiring process as a competitive advantage, and they can look at it, and, and some companies see it as that way, and the more good people you attract, the more other good people want to be there, and the better the environment. So it can be a competitive advantage. It's not, we, we have to stop looking at it in terms of just another requirement, but as something that benefits the company as a whole. That's an excellent point. It's also important to kind of keep in mind that it only takes one bad apple to really ruin a workplace. Haven't we all seen that? The one guy or gal that's going around that Bad you know, talking, but, causing problems. Right, either you know, really bad stuff, or just individually, just sort of being the the, the, the person that everybody kind of walks away from. Doesn't do their job. Uh, their tasks end up being passed on to somebody else. Uh, all right. Okay, so pre-employment screening. All right, so we've talked a lot about the importance of. We've talked about the fact that that everyone's really probably not doing the what they need to be doing on the employment side before they put them in the front door. But what can you do, Paul? Well, so what is a background check, right? So this is a slide that, that's probably more obvious than, you know, or pretty obvious, but let's just kind of say it's like, we want to find out, are they who they say they are? And we're going to see in a little bit that that's not exactly auto, an automatic answer. You know, have they provided accurate information? Are they qualified? Are they legally able to do it? You know, is it someone that you want to hire? Now, you can go through it all the, you know, Robert, you can like do the reference checks, public information, criminal background checks, licensing, and work history. So no, wait a minute, Paul. Stop right there. Stop the who who they say they are. So are you telling me that if we check the references and we check their licensing and their verification of work history, that that that's not enough? That 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 perhaps that's something that that uh, can be problematic. Well, we're going to see in a few slides that, in fact, they just, they might not be who they say they are, or they might not have, you know, well, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Let's, let's talk about the types of background checks that you can do. Most that I know of kind of do the, the top one, that kind of that basic one, right? They, they check a few references, and they... And what does that mean, checking a few references? They call references that the applicant gives them. Correct. So there's two problems wrong with that. First of all, an applicant, although I've actually had applicants give me names of people that have said horrible things about them, but most applicants are always going to make sure that they're going to give you names of folks that are only going to say wonderful things. And the other thing is that even if they give you stuff, we won't, you know, who's going to say bad things in a reference check? When somebody calls you, you're really reluctant to say bad things about somebody, even though you didn't like them. And we've all been in this situation, let's be honest, where you haven't liked the person. You're so glad when they're out the door. Yay, happy dance. Then someone calls, but you don't want to say that, right? That's, that's exactly right. And I used to work for an individual that, and understand, I don't care if you, if you were the greatest employee or the worst employee, his policy was when you left, the only thing he would say is, he was here, now he's gone. And that's kind of our policy here. Pretty much is. Pretty we, much. we verify dates of employment, <laughs> that's about, and that's about it. So what else can so, – so just calling, and it, it just doesn't really do it. You can also uh, – there are some criminal background checks. Most people will do the required ones, depending upon, you know, if you're – you know, who you're – what, what – uh, you provide. In many states, like Texas, you can go in and you can check those yourself. Right. I mean, it, it's it's not restricted to, to just law enforcement agencies that can check that. So all we can say is that when you're doing it yourself, you really need to be, you know, you got to kind of go the next step and um, call perhaps if they identify places that they've worked, not just call their references there, but try and get some other people. I know it's a burden. You know, we know it's a hassle, but you know, think about it. It makes a lot of sense, and particularly in light of what we're going to say. Now, some people do third-party background checks. Those are expensive. That means you're hiring someone to do it, but they have to comply with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which means they've got to 
if, they, if there's an adverse action, you've got to tell them upon what you're basing it. They have an opportunity to respond. It's a quagmire. And we've also seen, as I'm sure you can describe for us later on, that these third-party background checks aren't all they're cracked up to be. No, they're not. We've got, a, we've got some interesting information on that as well. All right, so what about doing a criminal background check? What's the problem with that? Well, you know, we'd like to think that there's a single database. Now, some people would like to say that, you know, our privacy concerns are we don't want to have, like, this one single database where everybody knows everything about everyone. And, that, you know, I'm among the privacy uh, protectors, frankly. But there is no single database. Uh, there are, at, you know, you can access for certain, if you're in a certain provider type, you're allowed access to certain information. There are sex offender lists or like Texas has a kind of like a bad employee list. You know, there are, you, you ought to, I think, do the basic criminal background checks if you possibly can, frankly. And you have to be careful because now, of course, EEOC is pushing very hard this idea that you can't even ask, unless it's required by a position, and you can justify it, you can't even ask certain folks whether or not they've been convicted of a felony. Right, and you and even if they have been convicted of a felony, you can't automatically Exclude dis disqualify someone on that basis because unless it has some relationship to their position. Now, it's hard to imagine. I mean, there are some felonies which are fairly minor, which perhaps don't relate. To anything, and you know, we all know of people that it's a bad deal. But yeah, smoking a little dope, something like that, yeah, perhaps. You know, when they were a kid, and it's a felony, they haven't gotten rid of it, something like that. But um, most people can usually find it. But you have to be careful. You can't. In fact, you know, there are check the box states. That's right. Where you can't ask it until like the second round of interviews. So be aware. Okay. Plus, this is very important. You know, uh, there there is no litmus test when it comes to checking right. an, an individual's background. Every state is different. So the home health, so like there are no federal laws for home health and hospice, for example, and the same thing for nursing homes. They say the feds punt and say, well, you have to, you know, follow the state. But now if you're in more than one state, you know, some states require background checks before work, some after you can start, and it can be in progress. Some don't need, some say, well, you can't hire people with felonies, but don't identify or enumerate which felonies. Mm -hmm. We're not, sounds like we're like just making more trouble, you know. But the fact is, you've got to understand what the rules are in your state for the particular position that you're going to be filling. I think that that's really the bottom line. Make sure in your state, if you have, if you're providing whatever service you're providing, it may be, and if you're in more than one state, then you got to follow it in each state. Now, this is one of the most interesting facts, I think, that we're going to cover today, Paul. You know, you think that in today's world, with the Internet like it is, that folks would, would really avoid giving out false information because they would figure that you could figure it out pretty easily. But I think, in fact, just the opposite is true. And, and you know, that's a real book, by the way, the fake resume book. I believe that's a real book. They, the estimate, and you know who really knows, but the estimate is about half of all applications contain false information. Now, sometimes that false information may be, you know, insignificant, like they say they finished college, but they only have three and a half years or something along those lines. But sometimes it's a lot more significant, like they make stock. They could say they have three and a half years experience working as a home health nurse for an agency that is now closed down. Sham certifications. It takes about two seconds to look up a home health agency that's been busted. And then all they have to do is list that on their resume. A friend of mine called me the other day and said, hey, guess what? This is a true agnostic. He said, I'm a minister. Someone wanted to get married, so I had to find a place where I could be a minister so that I could marry them. They wanted me to do the, the service. It was, there he was. He's now a minister. Look at the next slide. Oh, gosh. This right. one, I love this one, Paul. All right, now, I love this. That's not exactly the name because, you know, we are lawyers and we wanted to be sensitive about putting the real name. But it's sort of similar. But everything on this slide comes from that website that uh, career something or other.com. Yeah, if you want to if you want to know where it is, you can actually call Paul and he'll tell you where it is. I but think. the fact is there are a handful of these websites out there that we're aware of 
that for a, a relatively small amount of money, they will completely recreate your life. Everything from a new degree to a resume to references, recommendation letters. You provide. Just give us the area code of that of where you're applying. Give us their area code so we get so we're local and the story and, right in the industry and how many references they want and you know what dates of employment do we need to cover? Do we need to start from jump or you know are you okay for a while and um, what well, you're applying for? Now this is so important because you have to understand these third-party background companies that you're paying good money for to conduct these 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 um, uh, backgrounds for you. They have no way of knowing if the person they're talking to is real or not. That's There's, it, it's virtually impossible to know because they get, the, the, as you indicated, they get an area code in the city where the job was supposedly located, and it rings right to them, and they have all the information right there, including the duties that you did, the dates of service, what your what you uh, 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 what your performance was, the I, whole nine yards. I would hope, I would hope that a true third-party vendor, they have access to other information about that would be inconsistent with what they're making up, just the next level. So if they did, if they just did it on a superficial basis, as we're going to see some do, then they're not going to find it. But if they do a good job, Paul, they're going to find as it. as we're going to see, investigators, third-party background companies working for the federal government investigating in individuals that would be, have classified positions made stuff up. Seven. So why would we think well, that other third-party uh, background companies would not do the same thing? Well, they might. I, you know, I'm not willing to... to I don't, I'm not saying that they are. I'm just saying I'm very, very concerned about the, the accuracy of the information that we're getting. So my... my my thought would be if a good background check company would be able to pierce this stuff. But this is another one. You know, when your employer contacts your, you know, uh, your previous employer and professional references, they hear all the wonderful things you'll do. Our service is very authentic. Unless you tell someone, they'll never know. I don't think that that's true. I think that... Um, uh, that you can pierce it, but they do make it harder. By the way, they uh, these companies all say they, they will not provide their service if you apply for a federal government position. So because I'm assuming that means that they think that they are above the law or can skirt around the law when it's private, but that if it has something to do with the feds and they're assisting someone to get into the feds, that that could be problematic. So uh, I know nobody here would be thinking about using such a service, but they do have that caveat, and that's about the only caveat they have. And this is what you were talking about before. Yeah, this is what I was talking about, Paul. I mean, this is an example of, of one of the most egregious cases I've seen involving these background checks. It's, it's, um, it's a case that you found when you researched this issue. It was. It was. Um, it wasn't easy to find this. They weren't. I don't think the government was very proud of this. But the government had a, you know, a quitam or a whistleblower case that said that, you know, the company doing the background checks, they're just, uh, they're not doing them. They're pitching them, and um, they're so they started looking at them, and they ultimately there was a thirty million dollar settlement to resolve allegations that this company was simply taking the, wasn't doing their job and wasn't really doing the background checks. Now, of course, you know how they got paid? They got paid as a set-off to money that they owed that company. So basically, there was like no penalty, no anything, and who knows how many people were hired. The, the one stat that I love is this one where one of the reviewers supposedly completed more than 15,000 background investigations in one month? Well, he was a reviewer. So he was able to review, what's that, about 500 a day? <laughs> he was efficient, Robert. 
Come on. Unbelievable. Yeah, so, and you can see that that, so what does it tell us about background checks? Well, I think what it tells us is you cannot rely on just a background check. You're going to have to conduct more due diligence on your own. It's so important, as, as we discussed since the first slide, the, the folks that you let in your front door are the ones that, that can really, that's where you're spending your most money. That's where you, you subject your organization to its, it, its, its highest potential liability. And you have to take steps to make sure that you get the best people in the best positions. So, but it's it's not all gloom and doom, right? I mean, I, I know we're kind of, uh, as I'm listening to our each of us speak, we're kind of pessimistic about your ability to screen your employees. But in the real world, particularly in, in smaller providers, right, you have the ability to know people. You have the ability, to, you know, who's in your in your area, and you and you have the ability to do. You know, to not just to take the next step or the next two steps. I think that's what's important. In a weird way, it is easier in a small town. Yes, it is. Because I mean, everybody knows everybody. It's a fact. Now, you know, so my my advice on that is that I think you can do third-bound companies. I think that there are ones that do a good job, and I think that they can find, you know, the significant lies, maybe not the, the little ones, the little white lies or the little exaggerations. But they could find them. And I think that with good interviewing, you know, if somebody says that they did such and such a job, right? You know, it it takes it, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that, particularly in healthcare, every job, and HR knows this, every job has things that are particular or peculiar to that job. And I think with some good interviewing, when you ask somebody if they say they were a tech, a radiology tech. There's a, you know, you probably know something about radiology if you're in HR, and you know how to ask them about certain machines. Did you work on this machine? Did you work on that machine? Did you, you know, oh, how did, how did you like positioning? And if you don't know anything about that, you ask someone beforehand when they're coming into the interview. You know, what, would, what kind of things would an experienced tech really know, and how would, what kind of questions could I ask them? What do you think about that? I agree. I agree. And and with regard to education, checking education, there there really isn't any substitute for you looking up the number yourself, calling the institution, talking to the registrar's office, and seeing if they have a degree. It's not sufficient to, to have an individual come in, even with a copy of their diploma. You can literally buy a copy of any diploma. You can get a Harvard diploma today on the web with your name on it. You know, and you get a release for the information. And by the way, one last thing on this, and this I think is um, important, maybe. Yeah, I think this is important, and that is the fact that, you know, you can hire someone provisionally. I mean, I think that what happens a lot is that we decide, and then we figure, oh, well, there it is. But there's no reason why you can't send off for verification information. It sounds good. You think it's right. You hire them, but you say it's provisional. And, you know, because you have a probationary period or whatever. And during that time, you can continue to look a little deeper into their background. There's nothing wrong with that. That's true. But there are some things that you should not do, even on a provisional basis. Agreed. Absolutely. I'm, I agree with that. Absolutely. Such as screening. All right. So that takes us to, oh, here's, a, here's one. What is, ex, what is an exclusion and what is an exclusion screening? Well, let's talk about an exclusion. It is what an administrative action taken by the Secretary of Health and Human Resources, which is delegated to the Office of Inspector General, that bars a person from having any participation in any or all federal and state health care benefit programs. It's essentially the administrative nuclear bomb. So they can't work or accept Medicare and they can't work for anyone who takes Medicare or other federal health benefit programs. And, he, and here's the important thing about that, the second bullet. You know, the reason people are excluded, this is not just, you know, oh, I was excluded and I blah, blah, blah. When, if they were excluded, the reason ceases to exist. If you're arrested or convicted, right, the reason might make a difference. You might want to hire someone who's been arrested or convicted for any kind of crime, depending upon the explanation, and it might be okay. 
for an exclusion, there is no explanation. It doesn't matter. They may have a good reason. It may be a very sad story, but the fact of the matter is they are excluded because they are de they are deemed to have an unex to provide to be an unacceptable risk to patients and to the fair federal fisc. So and and the point with that, Paul, also is exclusion actions are not meant to be punitive actions against individuals. That's right. Frankly, the government could care less about, about penalizing these individuals. They've already been penalized when they were convicted or whatever other action was taken against them. Good point. The sole purpose of the exclusion action is to protect the program and its patients, period. That's exactly right. That's a really important, you know, we don't focus on that enough. That's a really important point. So in other words, it's done with them. They've been punished however they've been punished. doesn't matter. Now, this is all about putting people on notice that these are people you cannot hire. So, and, that, that's, and this is something you can't do on a provisional basis. Correct. Absolutely not. So as you say, you know, why do people get excluded? Well, you know, ha about half and half are mandatory and permissive. Um, the mandatory ones mainly mainly drugs, right? Yeah. Felony, they're all, they have to be a felony conviction for it to be mandatory. It's a drug, healthcare fraud, or patient abuse. One of those three things. And in fact, those are the main reasons for the permissive ones too. It's just that they may not have been convicted of a felony or it may have been not a mandatory felony. We also see a lot of board action cases on the permissive side. Right. Now, don't, just, just to be real clear, just because it says permissive, don't don't take that to mean that there's a good chance that the government is going to waive its permissive authority. That's right. In most cases, if you're eligible for permissive exclusion, OIG is going to exercise that authority. So, and if you're excluded a permissive one, it doesn't mean it's not any different than a mandatory one, except that there's a max of five years on the permissive one, and you can, and it's general, it's easier to get back in the program, but not automatic, right? That's right. So if you see someone that they say, oh, I was excluded 10 years ago, so, you know, and it was a three-year exclusion, so you can hire me, the answer to that is? Not yet. Not until you get a letter from OIG saying that you are eligible for readmission. So you've got, that person has to go back, and you still have to check them. So. And, 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 and we've had several of those cases, Paul, where where a, an employer comes to us and they say, look, you know, we thought it was okay because they brought in the letter. The letter said they were only excluded for five years, and that expired five years ago, so we didn't think it was a problem. Well, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, it is a problem. And, and, and frankly, an exclusion screening, which, you know, which we are part of, frankly, an exclusion screening, the largest percentage of cases that we have found of excluded people working for, for providers are folk who were excluded a long time ago, and when they when we came up with the name and showed it to them, they go, oh my gosh, she's been with us for five years. This was back however long. She said it was no longer, a, you know, it was no longer a part of anything, and it was over. It's not over until they have a letter that says it's over, and, and it happens quite frequently, well, at least frequently. So, now yeah. what's, what's the impact of an exclusion action, Paul? Oh wait, you lost the slide with my. Uh, oh, I did. Yeah, that's my like my. There we go. That's the height of my you know my ability to do stuff with this, uh, you know, with these programs. Radioactivity, right? As you say, the nuclear bomb. Can you do anything? What happens? Nothing, right? Right. So can you? Well, what about like let's say they say, oh well, they're in the front office. All they're doing is the building. All they're doing are administrative tasks. Can they do that? No. If one penny of their salary or overhead comes from federal or state health benefit monies, you've got a problem. You know, so theoretically, I suppose if you've got John who 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 is being paid cash to mow outside, that probably wouldn't be an issue. Uh, and you know, you're not going to have to worry about. Um, uh, companies that, that like utility companies or things like that, things that are mere condu conduits like electricity or, or the phones or the rest of it. But this idea that just because someone doesn't have any direct patient care 
that you don't have to worry about screening. That's that's completely incorrect. And it's employees, vendors, and contractors. So is any employee that is related to um, any federal health care program, and my, my, our thinking, frankly, is if you, if you provide a service for which you're reimbursed, it's just going to be just about any full-time employee. It's not worth your effort to try and figure out the handful of people that aren't. You just bump them in. The vendors and contractors, you know, it's, as you say, there are some that don't, but, you know, like the linen, you know, linen is related, you know, that's to patient care. If you're in a nursing home and they're providing the linens, I think that you absolutely would have to do that. Well, I think you've got to do it for your, your hazardous waste. I mean, all those are supplies that are they're all part of the, that all fits in in into the overall cost scheme that 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 uh, is used by Medicare and Medicaid to come up with reimbursement. So, someone that collects the trash outside, probably not. Someone that comes inside and, and gets the uh, the boxes, probably so. What happens? Well, so these are some of the consequences, right? Civil, you know. Civil money penalties, we get asked, well, why, you know, how often do they do it? The question is, they do it as often as they find it. So whenever they find one, then they start going back. And they can offer, they can, they can impose a civil money penalty for uh, literally for every, uh, upon every claim that you make. Now, they often, they will often go that far. But they, if, they, if you fail to screen on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, the OIG takes a position that that is a violation of the civil money penalty liability for which you may be liable for up to $10,000 for each claim that is submitted and each exclusion, you know, three times the amount. And I think it's interesting, if you look at the OIG website where they have, there's a huge list of all the practices and organizations that have had to pay CMPs. On every one, they say, this organization knew or should have known. Now, the reason they say should have known, Paul, is because... You're, there is a knowledge element to it, but they convert it to a should have known element. And that's part of the reason is because the exclusion law has been out there for, what, 30 years, 40 years? Yep, absolutely, since the, since the, since the 80s. What, what they basically are saying is, look, you need to screen, you know you need to screen. And so if you had screened, you would have found this person was excluded. Since you since he was excluded, I'm going to assume you didn't screen and you know only didn't screen because you're assumed to know the law. That's right. That's right. And, and in fact, many states now, when you actually uh, sign up to be a participating provider or you have to re-up, you actually have to swear that in fact you're conducting these screening screening um, uh, activities on a monthly basis. So, so the, you know, the next slide tells us there are. The, you know, oh, uh, before we go to the next slide, though, Paul, I, I do think this is a fascinating one to me. How a pharmacy chain had a pharmacist that was excluded. Now, this is someone understand the services were medically necessary, or and 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 they. Uh, uh, they write a prescription. They send the prescription to the the, the uh, or the, they give it to the patient. The patient takes it to the pharmacy. And the pharmacy fills it, but it ends up being filled by a pharmacist who's not. Well, and the chain. I'm not sure you know where it is, but yes, the chain had a whole bunch of pharmacists who were who they didn't bother to screen. And so, 21. That's by far the largest settlement. But they have been very much focused. On pharmacies, they focus on you know it, it's kind of like uh, when you do it as a, uh, a certificate of need or something like that. You're presumed to know, right? So they do the same kind of thing. Okay. What are the what are the requirements? We have to pick it up. What time is it? Anyway, um, requirements. So. There are people who say, well, there's no single there's no single document that says the OIG requires monthly screening. And that's true. They don't specifically say that you have to screen every month. But what they do say is if you don't screen every month, we will we can impose civil money penalties for your failure to do so. So what they're essentially saying is we're gonna give you a pass on CMPs if you're screening every month 
and you catch it. So let's say that you hire somebody on day one, right. and on the day one of the next month, you're doing your screening, and you find them. So now you've had them there for, let's say, 30 days. Well, except that you need to uh, screen them on hiring, too. So what, well, on day two, they hit the list. Let's right. say that on day two, they hit the list. Well, right. So, so on, for, for 29 days, they were on the list, and you shouldn't have known. They're not going to let you walk away without paying an overpayment. Probably. You're still going to have to pay that, but they're not going to hit you for CMPs. Right. And this is so, so that the kind of thing that it doesn't, you know, someone may not be on the list. We've had this several times that they may, may not be excluded when you hire them. It's happened a number of, yeah, it, it has happened several times. That we right. know. Yeah. And, and then you find, so you screen them and you hire them, they're fine, and three months later they hit the list for something they did in another state. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get, since you've been screening every month, they're not going to whack you for those three months, the civil money penalties. However, you would be responsible for the overpayments for those right. months. And, but typically if you've been screening, they're regularly <laughs> for those months. If you haven't been screening, then they are not. That's right. And and now this is important, Paul, because in years past, and I mean, you know, we're, I'd have to go back at least eight years, but in years past, it was pretty common for us to recommend that people screen at least on an annual basis. Well, that was the, that was their guidance up until 2013. In 1998, the guidance was annual screening. In 2013, they changed the rules, and they said every month. And so since then, Last, for the last five years. That's been the regulation, and they have been enforcing it more and more. And, and, and in today's society, where we have such a mobile group of folks, especially nurses that are licensed in multiple states, you know, they may move from one state to another, and it right. may be months before an action is taken against their license in, in a former state. Absolutely. And so states also, let's not forget that states so the OIG has its monthly requirement, and I, you know, if you do it any less than a month, you're just making a mistake. It's just, you know. Uh, but the states also have the requirement in the context of their Medicaid programs. So CMS may have mandated back in 2009, and then they affirmed it again in 2011, that states require any provider that gets Medicaid dollars to screen on a monthly basis. At this point, almost every state has adopted that standard. There's one or two out that do it quarterly. But by basically every state has adopted that. But in addition to the monthly requirement, as in Texas, as a part of becoming a provider, Medicaid provider. And in Louisiana. And in Louisiana, right? And in a few and in several other states. New York. You must certify on your application that neither you nor any of your employees, centers, or contractors have ever been or are currently excluded from any state or federal health care benefit program. So that would mean the Medicaid exclusion list, of which there are 37 states, have their own exclusion list. You are certifying that they are not on any of those exclusion lists as well as your state. Yeah, hang on, Paul. So you're saying that we it's not enough to just look at the OIG list. Absolutely not. You have to look at all the state Medicaid lists, too. You are always required to look at, if your state has its own list, you are, at a minimum, you are required to look at your state list on a monthly basis as well as the OIGs. You, if you read your, if your provider agreement with Medicaid, most states now have some sort of obligation, not all, but you need to read yours, that say in many states you are required to, to um, to certify that none of your employees or vendors or contractors have been excluded from any state, and in fact, and in some states, it's a criminal violation or an administrative violation if you fail if, if you fail to do that. In Louisiana, it's actually a criminal violation, and, isn't it? And, in, and it's an administrative statute in Texas, and it's a so screen easily. And and frankly, screening a lot is not difficult from a, from a vendors can uh, do it with relatively inexpensive. Well, and, and that's what's so, you know, confusing about it, I think, is if you're going to do one, you might as well do them all anyway. Because you, think about this, guys. Once again, this is not a check-the-box situation. You don't want these people in your organization. That's the whole purpose of this, to protect your patients, to protect the program. And to protect your organization. And so that's the loop back, right? That's where we started. All the people themselves are uh, 
The people themselves are your biggest cost, your biggest risk, and so we're looping back to that. All right, so we talked about how important it is to keep all the, the state lists uh, uh, in, the, in the picture. Is it, but are all the states together in one place? Oh, no, not only are they not all together, they're in different formats, there's some in PDF. But one state, I believe it's New Jersey, actually has their, their list in a non-searchable database. Now, figure this. These lists, by the way, these are public notice of people who you cannot hire because they've been excluded. Yet, they're not in any uniform database, they're not in any uniform format, so what do you do? You really do need to have a third-party vendor. Third-party vendors are very reasonable, um, it's a lot easier than doing it yourself, but uh, you just uh, need to be doing that. So, uh, now this is one of the craziest decisions I've heard yet. This one, the pharmacy was 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 penalized because it filled a script that was ordered by a doctor who had been excluded. Well, obviously several. So I think what, what happened was, so you've got this doctor who's writing these prescriptions and the doctor probably had no money at the end of the day, squandered it for whatever reason. So they went after, you know, they went after the pharmacy and said, you needed to check the pharmacist who was writing those prescriptions, which is, you know. Well, now, now to be clear though, there's nothing against the law, even if he was excluded, there's nothing against the law for him to see patients and yeah. treat patients and prescribe right. for patients. So they but, have a license. but he can't, he, you know, those prescriptions he's issued can't be paid for by Medicare or Medicaid. Right. They can be perfectly valid prescriptions. A patient could take them in and pay for them with cash. Absolutely, as long as they have their license. Yep. Because just because you're excluded does not necessarily mean you've lost your license. Exactly. It's an interesting thing. So we're almost out of time. So we're going to zip to this. You know, convictions. You know, they are reliable evidence, but you know, the um, uh, the employee. Um, they said that if there's a disparate impact, meaning you know, you can't just automatically exclude. We've talked about that before. Arrest exclusions, you can. Why? Because they're a final action. You can. Uh, they're public notice. That's why. It, you know, background checks are fine, but you really need to also make sure that you always conduct your exclusion screening. So then, you know, if we look at it, so here's our question, if there's an accident, an incident, or whatever causing harm, and the harm was related to someone who had been excluded or convicted of a serious crime, you know, is a judge or a jury going to be sympathetic? to your explanation that, uh, well, I didn't screen because, what, it was too expensive, I didn't have time, um, we were in a hurry. I don't think so. No, not at all. I think that the, this is what they're going to look like. Right. They're going to, they're going to, this is what it's going to look like to a jury. Yeah, the monkey that's not seeing or listening, that got the, the guy with his head in the ground. Right. So this is why, you know, you need to check on. There's bad, uh, there's not strong, uh, information sharing, and we're at five bucks. So let's see if we have any questions. But this is just a story of someone who, why you have to check all the states. They, you can see they, they that person um, was a, uh, was not excluded for a very long time. Only excluded on a limited database. So you've got to be thorough in it. So takeaway points. You really do need. Oh, to do make... we have any questions yeah. before we take away? Any questions? This is Catherine. Uh, we do we do have some questions. Sure. Okay. So um, our first question is this: What if we outsource our billing to another company? Do we need to worry about their employees being on the exclusion list? Technically, yes. we are paying them out of reimbursements from government payers. At, yes, billers and their employees, oh, they're a contractor, and contractors are required to do their own screening. Now, you can either ask them for a list and do, your own, and do the screening for them, or you can get some type of certification from them that they are doing the screening themselves. Ultimately, you're still accountable, so I would want some type of proof or, or assurances that they are doing the screening, but absolutely, billers have to be screened as well. 
So Neil OG, that's that's a good question because that comes up a lot. My, I think our position would be you should screen the company, right? And you should screen whoever the if it's what whoever owns the company, the company itself, and you can require them to uh, to do the screening. It should be part of your contract, part of your billing contract that says that they do the screening. But it's not enough for them to just say, okay, we'll do it. You really need, the OIG says, you really need to require something from them that shows they are doing the screening. Like an invoice. Like an invoice or like that they're, if they're doing it individually, like screenshots or something. So you can't just say, all right, you can't just pass it on to them and then not worry about it. You can pass it on to them. You're still responsible, but if they, you know, they if they show you that they're doing it and they demonstrate it, then you then you should be okay. So that's the answer, I think. Okay. Uh, let me see. Here's another one. Do we have to screen pharmacies as a physician writing scripts? So this is kind of the opposite of one that you had. So do you have to screen the farm? Wait. Yeah. Yeah, so you're a doctor, and you're going to be sending a patient to a specific pharmacy. Yes. So you do. Oh, no. Okay. Do you? Do we have to screen pharmacies as a physician? So you're a doctor, and do you have to screen the pharmacies as a physician well, writing the scripts? Well, first of all, it, well, there's two scenarios. One would be in most scenario, you would give a script to the patient, and they would go to their own pharmacy. So I think they have a hard time pinning that on you. On the other hand, though. If you're using a compounding pharmacy, that's a situation where you pretty much direct the patient where to go. And yes, I think that you ought to be screening that company. And I think that you ought to be having, just as with the billers, I think you ought to be telling the compounding pharmacy, I expect you to screen all your employees and I want certification of that. Right. I think Robert's got it, got it exactly right. Depends upon the relationship. If you're just giving a prescription to a patient, they're going to go wherever they go. And I don't think that there's, there's, you have anything to do with that. But if you're directing them to you know, a specific place and, you, and they have a relationship, then, uh, then yes, you probably ought to. Now, That's a contractor at this point. Well, I don't know if he's or your. Agent. I don't know if he's your con. Yeah, I don't know. It, I, but but I'll tell you what; those those compounding pharmacy relationships are very special. And docs will send them to one or two, you know, specific ones, depending on the 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 uh, uh, prescription. So I would I, better safe than sorry. Probably so. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. I have another question here. Uh, please clarify the exclusions screening for a new hire that was screened upon hire and was good, then the exclusion appears after 30 days. So you've screened them on hire and they were not excluded. And you find out 30 days, within 30 days, or the next in the next cycle of screening, in your normal cycle, you find that they've been excluded in that period of time. And you've checked back and you made sure you didn't make a mistake the first time and they weren't on the list, but you missed it. So if that's the case, what you would do at that point is, you know, you now have an Depending upon their responsibility, you know, you have an overpayment. It may be a very minor one. If they have an administrative task, they typically will calculate that overpayment in the context of their salary. There's a bizarre formula that they use, you know, so it's it's going to end up being something probably negligible, frankly. However, if it's if it's a if it's a if it's a biller, a direct biller, or a doctor, right? Anybody that uses has a billing number, or you know, then then that's different. But you're not. But the OIG has said that they're not going to look at you in the context of a, of a civil money penalty in that context because you are doing it. You screened them on hire. You're screening them. And, and frankly, what's going to happen is they're going to send you back basically what what I call a no pros letter. You know, but a no prosecution. Essentially, it's going to say we've decided we're not going to take any action against you for civil monetary penalties. Uh, we're going to direct you to deal directly with the MAC to uh, uh, determine uh, the amount of any overpayment that, that, that may be owed. And That's what's happened in the cases that I've handled. Right. And, and as long as they're not a, a direct, someone with a billing number itself, so directly writing, Very it, well. it's going to be uh, negligible. You're going to be fine. Okay. All right. Um, well, I think we have a few more questions, but I think we're about out of time. So um, I don't know if you can put up your last slide with the um, with your 
contact information there? Uh, okay. And listen, for a lot of really good information, go to exclusionscreening.com uh, or give give Paul a call. He is the guru in the country on exclusion issues. There's no one that has researched this issue more. Uh, I can honestly say he knows more about it than anyone in or out of the government. And I will just finish by saying, you know, it really is. This has been my focus for the last couple of years now. That, you know, who you hire and, and how you make those decisions is just so important. You know, don't, don't get sucked in by the pressures. I understand how difficult it is, um, you know, when you're under pressure to get somebody on board on the night shift or the, you need a nurse, you need a whatever. You know, you need a tech, you need to fill a slot. But, you know, they are, in fact, your greatest cost. And they are, in fact, your greatest risk. And so, you know, it only makes sense to do the best you can and to really take, uh, really be careful. So, okay, good. Thank you. Just thank you very much. Off. Good. Thank All right, you very and, much. Uh, thank you. And uh, you can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution um, at our website also at firsthcc.com or call us also at 888 543 Four seven seven eight, and thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Robert and Paul. Also, thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. bye, -bye.